I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. I was like very young and naive in my 20s. I just, I, I was, I, I was willing to sacrifice anything to prove myself and, and without really a good reason on the other side of that. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we chat with Zach Normandin, co-founder and CEO of Dirty Lemon, a detoxifying charcoal-infused beverage. But like many entrepreneurs, Zach's dedication to business hasn't always been harmonious with his personal life. I'd say in general, to achieve big things, you need to take big risks and not be afraid to to sleep on a couch or you know not have any money in your bank account or... Um, or not be able to see your family for a few days or whatever it may be. Um, and it's those situations that I think are going, that ultimately make you stronger and, and, and allow you to be successful. Find out how Zach's learning experiences, growth, and even missteps led him on a personal detox journey that not only created Dirty Lemon, but also a whole new philosophy about how a company should be run. Unfinished Biz starts now. I remember the first time I met Zach. It was the early days when he had just started Little Duck Organics, a snack line for babies and kids. Oh, that's right. We had a chance to stay in touch over the years, and he would share the positives and negatives of his entrepreneurial journey. And ultimately, he started a new exciting company called Dirty Lemon. Dirty Lemon really stands out because of its packaging. They did a great job with that. And on top of that, they've got a really unique way of distributing product to consumers. We had a chance to learn a little bit more about that, directly from Zach in New York City, where he had just gotten off a red-eye from California. Impressive. The guy really knows how to grind. It's been almost 10 years now since I started Little Duck. Um, I was a young dad in 2008. I just got out of the Coast Guard. So I did, after high school, my professional trajectory was I did four years in the Coast Guard. I got out of the Coast Guard. I was doing some industrial design work. I was an engineer in the Coast Guard. Um, I saw uh, through that process the opportunity. I found the opportunity to create um, food products just in a in a consulting capacity. Um, so I was doing some design work for um, a few different food manufacturers, very early like stage companies that were selling into Whole Foods and you know natural food stores in the Northeast. Saw through that process the pathway by which you you create a you know you you're able to create a, a scaled food product and as a young dad i saw um you know just the options that were available in grocery stores at the time um this was like plum organics and and happy baby were just starting to get going um i would say in the natural channels they definitely weren't saturated and conventional yet and I had always like been an idea guy. I always like I loved coming up with ideas on paper and seeing them come to life. Um, so yeah, in two thousand eight, I remember being still remember like just kind of everything around me at at that moment. But I remember I was uh, I was on a, a conference call or like a phone call, a Skype call with our primary packaging manufacturer in China. Um, someone I found on Alibaba and, uh, I remember doing a cash advance on a credit card, 
like for like $20,000 or something like that to get the cash to be able to do our first packaging run. Cause I had to wire the money over to them to like, you know, in advance of the run. And I was so green at the time. I didn't what know bro- what I was doing. Did you already have a brand name? Yeah, it was, it was little duck, um, much different packaging than, than when I ran the company. And then, you know, even now it's changed, uh, it's changed even further, but yeah, this was like the, the very early first, first edition of, of little duck. And what um, products did you, st- did you start with? Uh, so we started with the tiny fruits. So it was, um, four skews at the time. This was, uh, this is a good story because it's, it's such a good learning and, uh, for other entrepreneurs, but basically I, I had four skews. It was apple, banana, uh, blueberry apple, strawberry mango, and then I did an orange pineapple. They were all going to be organic. Basically, I designed like the perfect um, product line without having to, without doing sourcing or anything else that like really went into it. Um, I had a manufacturer lined up, and I knew within reason like what ingredients I could find. But come to find out, organic citrus, especially freeze dried organic citrus, is really really hard to to get, if not impossible to get. Um, so I, I have all of these packages that I made for an orange product that we never ended up making. Um, so that taught me the lesson of, of, uh, sourcing and finalizing your formulations before, um, before buying the packaging, yeah, buying the packaging. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, back to the, the thing, you know, I, I, that was really the, the first time that I entrepreneurially had no way to feasibly pay back the $20,000 plus that I had that I, I knew I had to, um, come up with to move things forward. Um, and I've been in credit card debt ever since. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just joking. Um, but no, it's, uh, yeah, that I, I just remember that moment. And I think that a lot of the decisions I've made since that point have always been kind of hinged on a risk factor of like not knowing necessarily if something was going to work out, but knowing the steps that I needed to move forward with, even if it was uncomfortable to, to move things forward to the next step. And, um, and how did you launch little duck into the market? So I, so it was early 2000, late 2008, early 2009. I was, uh, I remember I was in, so the first, uh, the first, I, I ended up getting all these packages and all these samples made. It's probably a couple thousand bags. I had like hand filled. And, um, the only way I knew to sell a product was just, I was like, well, I'm just going to send all of, I'm going to send to as many grocery stores as I can to the buyer. I had no clue the way that the industry worked, but I was just like, I'm going to send out as many as possible. So I think I sent out like four or 500 to like four or 500 grocery stores. Are you you talking about actual doors or are you talking to actual buyer desks? No, no, I, I didn't even know that there was like regional buying and like yeah. all planograms and all this stuff. I was just like, I'll just send it out to as many people as I can. And hopefully through that process, someone's going to be like, oh, cool. I would, I'll <laughs> give this a shot. So I remember I was at a wedding in Florida and I got a phone call on my cell phone and it was the buyer at Philbrick's Fresh Market in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, um, which is where I was living at the time. But I had sent product out to, um, to stores everywhere. It just happened that the Philbrick's buyer ended up ended up calling. Um, Philbrick's is a really nice grocery store. It's like a Whole Foods type of a store for um, a market that Whole Foods would probably never go into, which is very similar to a lot of other, you know, regions. But um, so I got a phone call from this woman, and she was like, "Well, um, hey, I'd like to place an order for Little Duck," 
and I had no, we hadn't even done production or anything like that. It was just like, I was just trying to like kind of gauge like the reception of the product. And I was like, okay, cool. Let me write your information down. And I wrote it down on a piece of paper and I ended up fulfilling that product like several months after that <laughs> for the first time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was the start of it. And then, um, very quickly found out like, you know, I started selling into a bunch of regional stores. Um, I, through another regional natural food store, um, Nature's Green Grocer in Peterborough, ended up meeting a guy named Ben Ellis, who's a broker. Um, and I remember I drove up to Durham, New Hampshire, to meet with Ben on like a snowy night. And um, and he was like, I think I can get you into Whole Foods. And I was like, oh, amazing. That would be so cool. And he's like, I know Rachel Forlair really well. At the time, Rachel was like, she was like the queen of, of Whole Foods buying. Um, and, uh, in like, Northeast. Yeah, in Northeast. He's like, um, I, I know Rachel. And, you know, I think, you know, I could just basically kind of add this into the products that I'm presenting to her next week. And I was like, all right, cool. I would, this would be so great. And we worked out like a really simple deal. It was like, it was basically like, if you get me in, like you get X. And if not, then it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a good shot, you know? And anyways, Rachel ended up approving and that started the process of UNFI and, and brokers and everything else. Um, but yeah, that was like the very early stages and then, um, built that company. And how did, and how did you fund? So we'll contrast this, but how'd you, (laughs) how'd you fund the business? Um, so early on it was just personal capital. And then, um, I had never raised capital before, um, but I ended up, uh, I remember I went to a wedding, another wedding, and um, and I knew that this guy that was at the wedding was an investor, and I had, like, never really interacted with investors before. Um, but I, I knew that this guy was an investor, and because my one of my cousins had worked for him as uh, his nanny. So it was just kind of, like, someone I knew about but didn't know personally. Um, so I made it a point to like introduce myself at the wedding and I was like, you know, this is what I'm working on. We're in a couple whole food stores, you know, whatever. And, um, he ended up writing our first big check. Um, and so we partnered with, uh, on little duck at like a very early stage. Um, I think we were doing like, I mean, it was like $20,000 a month or something like really, really small at the time. Um, was this your primary investor all the way through? Was it- no, no, no. We ended up, we ended up having a lot of investors yeah. over, over the, the time before, before I exited, but, but this was the first outside, yeah, exactly. true outside capital. Yeah. And, and truth be told, uh, so his name's Dave Furneaux. So, I mean, Dave ended up really teaching me a lot of like what I knew, what I know now about investing. Like I really had, I never Dave and, um, there's a woman, Penny Breen, who was like extremely helpful. I'd never even read a term sheet before or like even looked at a PL. It was just I, like everything I've learned has just been on the job. Um, and I remember the first term sheet, and she was like, We should spend a few hours and like actually read through every single thing here so you know what, like what you're getting into. And um, so, how'd you convince David initially? Just really the selling story of Little Duck? Yeah, I think um, Dave saw something in. So Dave is like a seasoned investor. He, he's invested in a lot of companies, um, but I think he just uh, you know it's a, it was a great opportunity at the time. There was um, not a lot of uh, it, 
there just wasn't a lot happening in food and beverage. Um, not like the, right now. I mean, I remember going to the first Expo East was in Boston and it was very small. Like it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a thing. I mean, it was a thing, but it wasn't like to the extent of what like West is now where there's like multiple auditoriums and all this stuff. Like I remember the first year they started moving companies downstairs at Expo West. Um, and now, I mean, they're in like five buildings or something like that. It's crazy. Um, you know, and similarly, you know, in the Northeast, I was living, um, in New Hampshire and then, and then in Massachusetts where I grew up. Um, but I, there was no like entrepreneurial community for food and beverage, um, startups. It was like, I was networking with like tech startups because that was the only startup community that was really kind of like progressing and moving forward at the time. So, so as you continue (laughs) to scale the business, what challenges did you confront? Um, so much. I mean, it, it was a much different set of challenges with Little Duck, more in that we were very inexperienced as a team. I never built a company before, so I think I made a lot of um, foolish mistakes. In Probably the biggest mistake was like holding on to too much and trying to prove myself. Um, From what perspective? Equity ownership? No, no, not equity, just... Um, Responsibility, responsibility wise, yeah. I mean, I was a young CEO, and I had a lot of like influential people around the company, and I wanted to basically show them that I knew how to do everything. And I think looking back on that, on that, and the way that I've built Dirty Lemon, you know, fast forward many years, um, you know, I'm trying to bring in the most experienced people possible. I know what my strength and skill set is, um, but having people in every functional area that um, you know, that are experts in those respective, you know, places, that's really how to build a company. And yeah. I didn't have that perspective at the what time. What about so. from a, from a <laughs> channels or margin standpoint, were there certain learnings from little duck as well? Uh, so little duck in terms of building he, it through brick and mortar. Yeah. So margin our big, structure. Yeah. So our biggest thing was it, you know, margin wise, it's all the same. It's, you know, with most food and beverage companies, it's like you're selling a lot and making a little, um, you know, it's like you're getting 30 to 40% gross margins. You know, we've changed the game with Dirty Lemon because we have, we're selling direct. So we don't have to pay brokerage fees or, you know, distributors or retailers or anything like that. We keep essentially the whole gross margin. Um, so we're, we're in a different position now, but at the time we were fighting the same game as everyone else, which is like, you know, how aggressive can you be with quarterly promotions and, you know, discounts and, you know, all of these things and how, and how can you leverage relationships to get priority with buyers? And, um, it's really all the same thing. And, um, it was just a, it was like, I remember our, our head of sales who ended and he ended up being our COO, Zach D'Angelo. Um, I mean, just being on the road, he would go out, you know, um, and just literally be on the road for months at a time, just knocking on doors, making as many buyer meetings as possible, presenting the product. We would fly out, I would fly out and meet him or we'd, we'd travel together and, I mean, that's really how we knocked down most of the doors. Um, but it was still, you know, that was, it, you could do that at the time. And I think things are changing now because of the bigger, you know, you have these fortune fifties now that are, are playing on the same turf as a lot of the smaller brands. And it's really hard to compete with, with the marketing dollars that they're willing to put forth, especially when grocery is a, is a declining, um, I would say format to, you know, for food and beverage products in general. Um, when you have like, you know, you know, companies like Amazon and, you know, boxed and thrive market and all these guys like really pursuing, 
you know, this idea of not having to even go into the grocery store, but getting the same quality products, if not maybe even a more crafted selection, I think that it becomes, yeah, it's a really, it's challenging, but. How did you learn about sort of that, that ecosystem that you were just talking about? Because obviously it's a first time sort of CPG entrepreneur understanding which buyers, you know, which brokers, which distributors. Right. Um, how did you kind of really figure out who to actually talk to? So it was really, I mean, it's the way I've done everything in my professional career so far. It's just getting to the right person and then asking a lot of questions and just networking, really. Um, I do think it's very challenging right now. I mean, not to keep talking about like the way it was, it used to be or whatever, but I do think it's a lot, it's a different landscape now. I remember with Little Duck, like we were, like it was, it, it, it felt so cool at the time because we were like young and the energy was great and it was just, it was a lot of fun. Um, I think that it's a lot more competitive now and to get, to build these relationships is just a lot harder naturally because there's a lot more people like, you know, focused on building them. Um, at the time, I mean, we were able to get in front of pretty much whoever we wanted to just by being like the new scrappy young, you know, cool startup. So So it's basically, there's just a lot of kind of fresh new ideas, scrappy startups that are yeah, I think the there is. Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of money going in that's replicating, I think, that like authenticity. Maybe not replicating it, but you look at, you know, um, you know, you look at these serial entrepreneurs that now have capital. Um, you, you know, like the guys from Sonoma Brands, for example, it's like, you know, it's really easy once you like see, or like even, um, you know, some of your counterparts like who are investing in, you know, established teams and then they can just keep replicating over and over again. I think that that's going to end though really soon. I think that like the next iteration of venture capital in the consumer space is going to look much different than it has over the last 10 or 15 years. But, um, but I think for now there's just a lot of, you know, I think this is a a capital dependent industry and when you have capital and you know, the formula, it, it's pretty, it's, you know, pretty formulaic. So related to investors, what are some of the (laughs) other, learnings that you had in working with investors during your little duck era? Um, I think the biggest takeaway, I mean, there's so many things, but I think the biggest takeaway for me in that was, um, I don't know. I mean, I wish I had like a, uh, I mean, I've pondered over this a lot. Like I just, I, I, Um, so basically what ended up happening was, um, we had a big round of funding. We had, um, a a number of notable names that came into the round. Um, and at the same time we were on the heels of, uh, acquisition. So, um, Plum sold to Campbell's happy baby sold to Dannon or Danone and, um, and Ellis kitchen sold to Haines Celestial all within like, it was like one summer, you know? Um, and we had just finished raising our round. A lot of that being kind of on the heels and momentum of what was happening in the category at the time. Um, but I think very quickly after that, we saw like, at least I saw the writing on the wall where there was um, just a lot of, there was a lot of, um, <laughs> there was a lot more activity, like a lot more fighting for shelf space. Now with with brands that had money to expand their SKUs as much, you know, as much as they wanted to. And it just kind of pushed all the little guys out. Um, so, so anyways, there was a guy that ended up, um, a private equity guy in New York here that ended up, um, 
having uh, expressing an interest for many years in, in coming into the company and um, and we sat down and I explained the situation and explained that like I didn't think that it was like that I wanted to be kind of a part of the next phase of growth for the company just given um, all of the dynamics that were at place with a lot of bigger investors in my equity stake in the company the market conditions etc um, and so anyways he ended up buying me out and then bought out a lot of the original investors as well um, my original investors so Dave and, and and a bunch of others that came in in the original round um, and yeah that was that but I mean from uh, from a learning standpoint I think just learning how to read people and learning to protect myself I think has been and just like having thick skin I think it's not um, what do you mean by protect yourself um I think a lot of young entrepreneurs get taken advantage of by investors just because they're not savvy enough yet in their careers to like really know there's just so many I mean as you guys know like your investors they like um and you guys have an incredible reputation but for every like investor that has a good reputation there's a lot who don't have a good reputation because they've burnt bridges along the way kind of trying to take advantage of situations in like in seemingly meaningless ways at the time but ended up really changing kind of the path or the trajectory of like what ended up happening with the founding team. Um, and I think that that's like kind of, I saw a little bit of that, but then I, I just, I was fortunate to be exposed to like things that were happening. Um, you know, I don't have anything really to point to. I wish I did. It was just like, I I look back on that whole experience as just an incredible kind of first, um, experience in the world of pitching ideas to investors you know, raising capital. Um, it was great. And now, I mean, I look at Dirty Lemon. We have, I would say, I mean, we haven't disclosed any of this to anyone and um, I'm not going to name drop here, but like we have the, probably the most influential group of investors in the CPG space in the company now. And I think well, I'm taking a lot of that that, learning. Let's, yeah, let's, yeah no. let's, let's transition to Dirty Lemon and, and cool. maybe yeah. start with just before we get too deep into the your investors. But Really, what was the premise of what is the premise of Dirty Lemon, and and how did you apply learnings from Little Duck into what you decide to start here? Yeah, so uh, coming off of Little Duck, I started an agency called Redwood. Um, made a lot of mistakes. Like realized very quickly that I didn't want to be running a creative agency. Um, this is very hard to do creative work, being a creative for other people, like selling essentially ideas and then seeing those ideas like kind of be manipulated not in a bad way but just by the client because ultimately they're the ones who are paying the bills um it was just like i was very depressed like it just wasn't my wasn't my thing but fortunately through that process i was able to build a really good network of of co-packers and um people that allowed us to take ideas on paper and bring them to life very fast so we did ice cream, we did yogurt, we did beverages, we did all kinds of things. I mean, basically the whole premise behind the agency was we're going to be able to accelerate your path from concept through to a product that you can present to buyers faster than you would be able to do it on your own because we have a network. And, um, you know, and that's what we sold. But through that process, I was naturally just thinking about all of these, like seeing what was happening in the industry and thinking about other ideas of my own. Um, and ended up meeting, uh, my co-founder in Dirty Lemon summer through the agency, through Redwood. She was introduced as a potential client. Um, she was working on a food concept at the time. Um, 
knew going back to my point before that like I needed, if I were to ever do a company on my own in the future, I really needed to have, it needed to be like a full team effort. Um, she's an incredible operator, really like strategic and analytical in ways that I probably will never be. So we balance each other out really nicely. And, um, that, um, that was kind of the catalyst. So I've been sitting on this idea with activated charcoal for a while and seeing at a very basic level, what happens when you have activated charcoal in a bottle. Um, if you let you know, one of these drinks sit for an extended period of time, like all the charcoal went to the bottom and you basically, it looked like it was just like a, a bottle of water. Um, and then when you shake it up, it turns black again. And I just like, I thought the, I, I thought the concept was cool. So we started HPPing it and just playing around with formulations. And Summer came up with the first formulation for our detox. Um, and she's formulated every product since. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the, the brand started with the black and white bottle that we have here. Um, we have, um, going on six beverages now and, um, the brand, the f- brand focused is premium enhanced lemon water. So lemon water has a lot of amazing health benefits. Um, hasn't really been ever, uh, you know, pursued by any major beverage brand, just focusing on lemon alone. We don't add sugar to any of our products, so they're not lemonades. It's more looking at the, um, the base formulation, which in every one of our products, it's, um, lemon juice, ocean minerals, and sea salt. Um, and then on top of that, we add other ingredients that kind of makes it more functional. So, we have um, our charcoal, we have collagen, we have ginseng, matcha, rose water. But it started with a single a single skew? It started with just the detox. And I would say um, I would say that yeah, so the I guess taking a step back, there's two or so in, in looking at uh, the the space at the time that we launched the company, there was it things were just I saw things changing really quickly. I saw like the process that it took to like sell products into Whole Foods or Target and it wasn't something that I wanted to do again. Um I saw the way that people were buying products online and it was all like about rapid on demand. You look at like Postmates or, you know, Amazon Prime even it's like you know, it was around that same time that Amazon was starting to test, you know, same day deliveries in New York. Um which is just fascinating that like people were looking for that speed of, of product delivery, but not something that they would have to go pick up. Like they actually wanted it at their house same day. They wanted to pick something out and actually get it same day. Um, so Summer and I started thinking about how we can basically merge this idea of on-demand delivery with beverage. So beverage, as you guys know, it's very high velocity. Um, you know, some of actually, I would say the biggest, the biggest acquisitions historically in food and beverage have been in the beverage space. Um, but there's also, I think a really interesting changing dynamic in beverage right now where, you know, the players that have the majority of the market right now, which is Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper. I think that they're losing market share and appeal with consumers very fast. Um, and then also on the other side of that, you know, the channels by which the predominant players are selling their products through or declining in, you know, their appeal to consumers as well. So I think it's a perfect storm of, um, uh, of opportunity to really disrupt not only beverage with, um, a product that's uh, more appealing to consumers than some of the other options that are out there, 
but also with um, with a new distribution channel that's direct and fast and in keeping with what consumers have come to expect, the modern consumer has come so to expect. direct-to-consumer cold chain beverage, which is certainly yeah. a first. Y- yeah, and now we're looking, I mean, so, to, as, and I'll, as get, as I'll get back to that, but yeah, yeah, as a start, I mean, it was the only way to do it, really. You know, like, we didn't have the volumes to be able to justify, you know, aseptic or, you know, or cans or anything like that. I guess we could have done cans if we wanted to in the beginning. Um, but yeah, we focused on, like, a premium beverage, because we were... We knew that to sell direct, to start anyway, we would need to be that the ceiling of, from a price point st- you know, standpoint, could be only at the highest end of the spectrum that was currently available. And that was with juice cleanses. So we, we focused around this idea of, of the same, like focusing on the same consumer as, you know, as uh, the juice cleanse customer, um, but without having the limitations and restrictions. Because we saw that, like all of my friends and summer's friends, like people were saying, excuse me, saying that they were on a juice cleanse, but really what that meant was that they would drink a green juice in the morning, they would go to a soul cycle class, then they would have like a full <laughs> dinner at nighttime and then drink a bottle of wine and then wake up the next morning and maybe do a soul cycle class first thing and then have their green juice at lunch. But they weren't really on a juice cleanse. Like it was like this was it was more an idea of balance and how that, you know, beverages like Blueprint and Suja even you know, they introduced this idea of an accessible balance with the consumer. Um, so, yeah, so that's what we, um, you know, we presented this concept where it was like, l- you live your life and we're going to provide a formulation with ingredients that are powerful that will, um, you know, let the ingredients do the work was essentially the whole, um, and, and, and live a life of balance because anything that's not balanced is, is probably extreme on one end or the other, which isn't healthy. Right, because the cleanse itself, most of the time, it's actually meant to be almost a replacement. Right? Of course. It's supposed to be a substitute. Right. That being said, right. you know, oftentimes it's, it's additive, right? Correct. And so what you guys were thinking about was more just let us be part of your life. Yeah. You don't necessarily need to change your lifestyle, but it's, it's something that will actually add balance. That's right, yeah. Gotcha. And um, it's interesting because obviously with Little Duck, that concept came from you being a young father feeling like, wait a second, there's just, there's not something that I really want to feed my kids right here. Was this also a bit of a lifestyle driven sort of idea? It's like, wait, a lot of my friends are kind of going into this as well, but it just, I don't see anything out there that meets our needs. Yeah. I mean, not as much. um, Like I think the needs, the need state for this type of product is met through through the like the brand creates the need state right um so i think like you know you look at um blueprint cleanse like they probably inadvertently at the time but they created this like cult like following around around the juices and everything i think that the way that the product was was interpreted is probably much different than the way that consumers ended up you know consuming it um yeah i think beverage has always been appealing to me because the beverage choices that consumers make say a lot about who they are as a as an individual. Um, I think that the Fiji water drinker probably isn't the smart water drinker, and whoever's drinking Poland Springs probably isn't drinking smart water. It's just like there's, you know, and it's the same can be said for a lot of other beverage products. Um, I think that beverage is is probably one of the only fashionable food categories. Um, you know, I don't think people are like 
you know, oh, look at this beef jerky that I'm drinking. Like, or I mean, I'm <laughs> eating. It's like, you know, it's so... But this bottle's very much a badge. Yeah. Exactly. Like, we want... We always viewed the brand as an accessory to... Like, we want people to be walking out the door being like, okay, I'm going to grab my keys, my bag, and my bottle of Dirty Lemon because right. this... It, it represents my lifestyle. Um, and we've been fortunate that we've had a very large community of consumers that have, um, have been attracted to that idea and have... Um, have kind of followed us down this journey, but, um, but yeah, that, that was my appeal to the beverage category was more, was more around this, this idea of merging fashion and function in a way that in a consumable product. But I also think the, the way you went to market is very disruptive. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about what's that framework that you, yeah. that you've set up for a direct to consumer model. So, yeah, so all of our orders to date have gone through text message. Um, we built out, platform which we own um, all the tech around um, which allows customers to place orders for the product via sms so the transaction actually happens over sms and then they can engage with customer service at any time 24 7 um so what how's, this, a, how's, a trans- how, how's a transaction how's a transaction how's a transaction work with the customer so the first time that you want to place an order you go into the website you choose what you'd like and then you follow a very similar it looks like a, a checkout. Um, but through that process, you register your phone number, um, and then your phone number is linked to all of your account information. So in the future, if you want to come back, as long as you're texting from your phone, we're going to have all of your information readily available. Um, so we have over 100,000 customers on the platform now. But the vision is to have a million or five million customers and use the direct consumer platform as a way to validate um, beverage concepts before they would presumably go to, uh, you know, to retail or, you know, to maybe a wider distribution network. I think that direct consumer is a great, very efficient way to be able to sell to consumers um, without the need of brick and mortar. But I do think that like, I mean, it's unquestionable that the majority of beverage sales are still happening in brick and mortar stores. Um, you know, we just want to we want to make smarter decisions around um, around the products that we're launching with validation that's already occurred with like a mainstream consumer before it gets to to store shelves. So, how, how did you solve cold chain direct to consumer? It's extremely supply chain challenging. Yeah, we um, so we ship. We started with like a very bulky foam cooler. Um, it had. It was just probably the dirtiest, like, um, dirty from, like, a, a eco-friendly standpoint. It was just, like, not a very – it was a very cumbersome packaging um, configuration. But we started with that, and then now we're in a place where we actually have custom solutions, and you know, that we're able to, um, you know, to uh, – you know, uh, use in the, you know, in the, in the configuration that goes to consumers. Um, our COO, Adam Loris has done an incredible job of, of really looking at the supply chain in a very holistic way and, and looking at all of the different areas that we can, um, you, you know, provide scaled, um, you know, you, convenient solutions to, do you have your own warehouses across the country? Yeah, so our goal, and we're very close to this now, um, is to have um, the majority of the U.S. covered by, by one day, like, ground shipping. Um, so when we first started, we were shipping from one warehouse on the East Coast, and we were overnighting a lot of stuff, which is extremely high shipping costs. Um, now we have three warehouses, soon to be a fourth, uh, opening up. 
Um, so we have one in New Jersey, one in two in California. Um, looking at one in like mid country. And these are third party or your own warehouses? Uh, they're three PLs. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we're and we're shipping with a custom uh, insulated uh, like soft um, cooler. Uh, it's like a soft bag that's insulated um, with almost like a Tempur-Pedic material that keeps everything insulated really well. We ship with ice packs and um, and then it's six bottles per case. And I'm digging into this because I think it's one of the, the biggest questions that you see on trade show floors these days. Is I, I'm a refrigerated perishable product. Right. I want to grow on e-com and how do I do it? Yeah, and it's very, it's extremely challenging. I mean, in the summertime, it's a nightmare for us. Like we have a very you know, you have to have capital that allows you to kind of take a hit and, and without losing customers, you know, we have customers that are like, you know, I just got my product and um, it's, you know, the bottles are hot to the touch. Well, like that, you know, that's a problem. We can't sell, they, they can't drink that product. So we have to reship it to them. And I mean, the reason why is because, um, you know, the reason why that happens is because, you know, this, these, you know, packages are staying in, um, you know, 100 degree plus UPS trucks all day long. By the time they get to the customer, they're getting dropped on a, on a you know uh, front porch or something like that, and then they have direct sunlight on them all day. It's just it's a very hard supply chain to manage. But that being said, there's a lot of um, last mile delivery services that are coming up now to really kind of replicate this whole idea of of, of same day delivery or like very fast service to the customer. Um, and I think that that plays in our advantage. Um, you, know, you look at companies like Blue Apron or Home Chef or you know HelloFresh, like all these meal deliveries. They're these meal kit deliveries. They're facing the same exact issues as we are. Um, and if they've grown to the scales that they're at, like I think that we have a lot of room to grow with with you know with cold chain. So when when do you think you'll take the beverages to brick and mortar? Um, we're so we are selling in some strategic. Um, retail locations right now but it's more just like tests we're, we're selling in a bunch of hospitality accounts so we're in like the soho houses we're in a bunch of high-end hotels but that's more of a marketing play for us just to get the product in front of the right people um i think you know as we talk to more strategic investors and potential acquirers i think and this has only happened over the last few months for me um, i think i've realized that in order to sell the company and the true and to see the true value of what we're building, we're going to need to test the waters in at least one or two strategic retail accounts. But I think that there's a way to do that um, without having that, without being reliant on on traditional brick and mortar. I mean, we have a really great business just in the direct to consumer, um, uh, y- you know, with direct to consumer because that's our only business right now. Um, so the way I look at it is anything that we that we end up doing, you know, with tradi- traditional brick and mortar is like an added bonus on top of that. And I think the problem or what happens with a lot of companies is that they become overly reliant on Target or Costco or Whole Foods or whatever. And then when something happens, like with buyers switching or whatever, and they lose that account, they end up t- like really taking a hit on that. Um, so we've built our core in something that's, you know, uh, I think a little bit more stable. So when you started to go direct to consumer and started taking orders on via text, right. was anyone else doing that at that point? Uh, I mean, to my knowledge, we're the only company, consumer or otherwise, in the country that's processing orders via text message. So then in, from that perspective, did you guys yourselves have to start building out that platform? Like, How did you go about doing that? Did you need developers? Did you? Yeah, absolutely. So we, have, we started with an outsourced like agency. We've gone through a, a number of iterations in this 
nor Summer or myself, we've never built a technology company. So, um, so it's, there's been a really big learning curve in managing developers, um, understanding just like scalable tech. I think scalable food is one thing, but scalable tech, um, like our first platform, actually the first version of, it, of the platform, we couldn't even see what customers were saying on the other end. It was just like a bot essentially. So people were like, I want to place an order. And hopefully the, the system picked up that they wanted to place an order. <laughs> and then it wasn't for probably four or five months after that until we actually got access to this backend panel of like all of these customer conversations, which is fascinating. And now we're at a place where we have full visibility and we have, we can send, you know, it's fully interactive. You know, we have like it, it's a full admin backend. So, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So as you kind of think about where your team is now, how much of your team is sort of dedicated to the technology, sort of making sure that orders being taken, questions are being answered, things of that nature. Um, so about, uh, so we have 12 full-time employees right now and five of them are developers. Got it. Yeah. So we're investing very heavily in the tech, but with, so my, my vision for the company is to, I mean, we want to build at a very high level, the next Coca-Cola. Um, so I want to do what Coke has done with brick and mortar stores and traditional distribution. You know, they have a common operational infrastructure around bottling, you know, um, brand creation, brand management, all of that. Um, you know, they have, you know, you have Coke, you have Sprite, you have all of these brands underneath one umbrella. Um, you know, we're very focused on Dirty Lemon right now and probably for the foreseeable future, but um, there is, in the future, a very clear path to being able to say, all right, we have a million customers right now. Let's take a segment of those customers and create a product specifically for them and then have, we, we've already paid for the customer and we have direct access to be able to sell them a new product. Um, and that is, I think, the future, like rapid innovation around a customer that you own and you don't need to be relying upon like a third party to be able to sell them the products. So and does that make you feel a little bit more, because we're starting to see, you know, obviously more businesses kind of term themselves almost as, you know, we're, we're more tech companies than we are consumer brands, sure. right? And, you know, it kind of depending on... It could very well just be that, oh, it's mainly because we sell online. Right. I mean, in your case, you guys are selling through kind of a proprietary platform. Right. Um, do you consider yourself to be more of a tech play or even a platform at this point, or are you a brand? Uh, I would say from a consumer standpoint, we're a brand. Um, we have to focus on the brand. But I think the business opportunity here lies in the distribution platform and really innovating in distribution of beverages. Um, you know, now that we have the system set up and like us selling an ambient beverage would be really easy. And we're looking at that right now. So like, you know, getting into cans or getting into in something aseptic or whatever. Um, you know, now that the foundation is built, the opportunities to scale are, are endless. And we're conditioning a very, a very specific consumer to look to us for beverage innovation, which, um, you know that I think that when you look at the the, the category, it's just a, it's a massive opportunity um, and something that no one's really taking advantage of in this way right now. So. Related to the technology <coughs> backend, did it change the type of investors that you've brought in for this venture versus Little Duck? Yeah, we uh, we actually don't have um, any food and beverage investors in the syndicate right now. I mean, we have consumer investors that have investor that have invested in food brands. Um, 
but yeah, the majority of our investors are either angels that have sh- expressed an interest in the space or they're technology investors. Um, yeah, it's celebrities, music, entertainment, like a lot of influence in, um, in a world where, um, where, like, when you look at music and, and entertainment specifically, they're driving so much of the purchasing decisions at retail even. Um, and so our theory from the beginning was to get as close as possible um, to some of the decision makers in the entertainment and music space to be able to get the products in front of the right people so that we could have a little bit more of an organic or a natural um, presentation of the product with celebrities rather than have it be an overt like product placement. So what's an example? How have you seen that come to life? Um, we're just really starting to, we've been very cautious to be honest. Like, I mean, we've seen over the years, you know, with Beyonce and Watermelon Water and, um, you know, like, uh, it seems like a lot of, a lot of the, you know, Justin Timberlake with buy and, um, a lot of the bigger beverage brands have, have been a little bit more overt about their celebrity endorsers. Um, we have, um, been more just cautious about it and really trying to, um, have it all feel organic and natural. Um, so I can't point to anything where, um, you know, in a big way the brand's been activated, but I know that we have the potential if we do it right to, to have a really significant impact. So how do you reach some of these people? It's truly just like networking. Um, I think that we've, um, in a similar way, uh, had been very fortunate to have, um, a few very, like influential people in the investment world um, support the company early on. And I think that's opened up doors. And um, I mean, as I found very quickly, and this is something I didn't realize a long time ago, but, you know, um, investor pedigree or whatever you may call it, like experience, reputation, you know, goes a long way with other investors. And um, when you get the validation from, you know, a specific group of investors or whatever, then, um, it makes that conversation a lot easier to have with um, with other investors. And I think that that happened in a number of different ways, um, but it it kind of all came together to benefit the brand, which has been which has been great. Was uh, there a specific investor that you found validated dirty lemon for others? Um, there yeah, I mean, it's um, it, there's been a lot. I mean, we've had. Uh, I'd prefer not to to name names, but it's um, yeah, we're in extremely fortunate position to have a lot of great support around the company. So, what's the primary difference you've seen between tech focus investors and food investors that you've had in the past? Um, I think the food industry, like we've discussed, is in a really um, like there's a lot that's changing right now and. I think one of the biggest things that I was cautious of in in um, having food investors come into the company was just that we were going to get kind of forced into doing things the way that every other food company has done them. Um, and I think a lot of the value that's come by our current investors has come because they've they're involved in all these other industries that we that you know have have uh, relevant I would say parallels to to food and beverage. Um, but they're not directly related. So I just think having an outside perspective on, on the growth of a brand or, or innovation is, um, is really valuable. I mean, there's really no playbook for what we're doing. 
Um, so I want to make sure we have really innovative thinkers that aren't like in tunnel vision around like this is the way it needs to be done because there's really like we don't know the way that this is all going to pan out. Have and you found have you found tech investors value businesses in a different methodology than food and consumer investors? Yeah, without question. Yeah, it's it's much more about I think that hypothetical is like is an accepted an accepted. Um, you know, idea to value a company or concept to value a company in technology and, um, you know, in food and beverage, it's more about like, what are your turns? What are you, you know, how many doors are you in? Um, you know, it's just like much more data driven. Um, I think, you know, the irony of that is that we actually have a very data driven company. Um, we know our customer cost to acquire a customer. We know we have LTV on every customer. We have, um, you know, all of the metrics that you, all of the metrics you would want as an e-commerce company um, without, uh, you know, but having that be more in our control than, um, you know, in the hands of, of store buyers. So, Can you talk a little bit about on the actual bottle itself? It says, do not follow Dirty Lemon on Instagram. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, so we, we launched the brand on Instagram and um, at a very different time for Instagram too where... Um, we found very quickly like the formula to <laughs> to um, just to attract eyeballs. And it was through like, you know, a little uh, it was just through, uh, I would say, very engaging content. Um, a lot of brands were posting just like the same old like, you know, a picture of the product um, next to an ingredient or something like that. And we um, we took a completely different view of that and said, we're going to post like quirky irreverent photos of basically the lifestyle that we represent um, mixed in with products, you know, product photos. But um, so, yeah, I think that that's just a nod to maybe the irreverence of the brand. We're trying to um, obviously not take everything, you know, super serious. We don't. um, And naturally that's resulted in a lot of people taking photos of it and posting (laughs) it online. Um, I think counter like the whole counterculture, like, you know, people love doing what they're, what they're told not to do. Um, So, and is the is the tone and the quirkiness is that coming from you? Or are you the person who's actually kind of signing off or even writing the copy? Or uh, so we have an in house copywriter. Um, so Catherine Carroll does all of our copywriting, um, and yeah, we. Um, I would say that I mean it's very much an in house effort. I mean it's a conversation that we're having daily, and um, you know, just design wise, everything. It's all like we're we're really trying to figure out, I think at this stage, what the next version of it, it would be really easy to keep doing what we're doing over and over again. Um, but I think we're thinking now about how to incorporate like the next level of, of like, how do we push the boundaries even more? Um, and I think that being a very social media heavy brand from such an early stage has forced us to think through a lot of the things that brands never even like, cross the bridge of, of thinking through when they're established. I think that being on store shelves is almost a cheap way to build a brand. It's a very easy way to build a business, but it's a cheap way to build a brand because like, think about, I mean, you guys are investors, so you know, but or you, you've, I'm sure you've been to a lot of different brand websites, but the majority of consumers never go to a brand Instagram or a brand website. Um, the, the exposure that they have to that product is or to a product or a brand is through, uh, through their engagement with that on shelf. Um, 
you know, our first point of contact with customers is online. So we have to be a lot more thoughtful and deliberate about the way that we're presenting the brand. And yeah, this was just like a way to kind of bring it all full circle with, I mean, it would be, it would be easy for us to say, um, you know, follow us on Instagram or whatever, but that wasn't a very like dirty lemon friendly tone. So we decided (laughs) to just flip that, you know, what's, what's the methodology where you found most successful in driving trial online for a, a first time dirty lemon consumer? Um, the best method that we've found is, is, um, so we've, we've had a lot of good press and a lot of people that have written like firsthand accounts of their, their product, their, um, you know, time with the product or like what their experience has been with the product. And, um, which really just goes back to like the quality of, of the product that we're making. Like they've all been overwhelmingly positive. So we just promote those articles. Um, we promote basically, it's like, you know, I drank dirty lemon for a week and this is what happened, or this was my experience. And overwhelmingly that's the best way to, for us to, um, to acquire new customers. So it's not ad, ad buys online. Oh no, no, no. We're, we're putting ad dollars against third party articles. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's very, um, I would say it's very organic in the way it's presented to consumers. We're catching them with like a really great photo or some engaging, you know, content that we've created a really catchy tagline. And then, you know, having them read through an article if they want to about the product. Um, and typically that, you know, leads them to the website and then they make their first purchase. And we're just starting to get now into subscription, which we're really excited about. So, um, we've always had, and maybe this is a good thing to touch on. Um, we've always had a very high price point intentionally because we, we've wanted to, I think that summer and I went into this thinking if we can sell a product online that people haven't a consumable product that people haven't touched or taste or tasted or seen before for many people, um, at a very high price point, then we're going to be able to sell like pretty much we could sell anything, you know, on in, we, we were very focused on figuring out like what that formula was for selling products online. And, um, you know, I think one very critical piece of that is the price point. So if you look at like dollar shave club, which is an incredible business that they built, um, in that company, but they, um, you know, they were acquiring customers for a dollar, which is really easy to do. Um, especially online, like you, you know, you don't have to offer much to get someone to spend a dollar. Um, but retaining those customers for a long time is very, is very challenging and getting a lifetime value. That's like that far exceeds that is really hard. Um, so there's, um, I think that naturally by starting at with a high price point, it kind of weeded out a lot of the noise and we ended up just focusing on a really targeted consumer that was attracted to the brand, interested in the products that we were offering and was willing to spend a higher price. Right after the break, we'll talk more with our guest, Dirty Lemon co-founder and CEO, Zach Normandon. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can catch up on all of our episodes at unfinishedbiz.com and chat with us on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. If you enjoy the show, let us know by leaving a review. And now back to our episode with Dirty Lemon's Zach Normandin. So as you kind of think back across your various businesses, was there ever a moment that was sort of a, a bet the company moment? I honestly, I feel at this stage of my career, like every day is like a bet the company moment. It sounds um, crazy, but we've we're. I think that this is a once in a lifetime entrepreneurial opportunity for me. 
And I feel like every day and every moment is just as important as the last. And um, I think if there's anything that maybe going into one of the later questions that you have, like the things that keeps me up at night is just losing this opportunity. I don't want to see that happen. And, um, and growing fast enough and really seeing this through, um, you know, I, I have experience in the space, but I'm not, I still haven't had the win that I want to have. Um, and, um, I really like, I feel, I feel excited every day to be building this company because I, I see a clear path. Like I see what's the writings on the wall we have. I think this is ours to lose. You know, we have the tools and the technology and the brand to be able to see this reach whatever level of success that we want to. And, um, it's just a matter of like putting in the work to make it happen. So, um, I do think, and I know it's, it may sound like a cliche answer, but I do think like every day is, is really a bet the company moment. We, um, I personally have everything on the line, like in this and, um, that keeps me going. Obviously having three children is like a very big motivating factor in this whole thing. Like I want to be able to, uh, <laughs> be a part of their lives. And I'm only laughing because I just, I, I know I haven't been as present as I want to, but I do believe as, on the other side of this, like this intense, like period of work in my life, then like it, I build a legacy for them that, you know, they can, that will impact their lives significantly in the future. Um, so yeah. And so there's no, like, there's no other option for me, which is, which is my bet, the bet, the company moment. So. What, what do you think is the biggest risk that exists today that could derail that dream? Um, I think, uh, running out of money is a big, is a big thing. I think that because there's no playbook for this, we have to take, we need to make educated decisions around investments in, in what is the most feasible next step for the company. But it's not like, sometimes it's not, they're not the right moves. And we just have to, we have to be nimble enough to be able to make that decision, you know, maybe absorb like a loss that whatever that, you know, represents and then move on and do something else. Um, so I think that just making sure that we're, we're capitalized enough is, is a big thing, but um, has raising money been a challenge for Dirty Lemon? No, not at all. Um, but there's obviously like politics and logistics that go into just structuring, you know, fundraising in a way that um, obviously continues to be beneficial for everyone involved. And that's something that I'm learning um, quite a bit about is like, how do we raise later stage um, funding that's not super dilutive to everyone that um, doesn't put the company in a bad position, et cetera, which is like a whole nother, um, you know, set of skills that, it's easy to sell a dream. You know, it's, it's, I think, um, I'm excited to be learning more about fundraising at like the next level where we start to really, um, you know, think strategically about the dollars going into the company. So through your journey, both in little duck and dirty lemon, there's various high points and low points. What's been a, a notable low point for, for you in this journey? Um, this has been, um, probably the most challenging the last two years, like the most challenging period of my life. Um, it's extremely, extremely taxing emotionally, physically. And, you know, there's some days where it's great and like you're, you're riding a high because of something that happened. And there's some days that like, I just, I, I'm just depressed or I feel like just exhausted by everything. And I know that that's, sh- that sentiment's shared. I mean, we have, we run this company at a very fast pace and um, 
I don't I don't have the the key to like success and balance, but um, in balancing like the entrepreneurial lifestyle. But um, yeah, I've had just moments where it's just feels like nothing feels right. And then moments where everything feels great. And um, yeah, it's very hard. I wouldn't <laughs> I, uh, I say this joking sometimes, but I really mean it like I wouldn't wish this life on anyone like it's which it's, I'm not trying to sound like a, um, like a martyr for anything, but it's just, it's really, really challenging. It's very hard. And I think that, um, as I look into like, you know, in the future, like, I think that it's this perspective and being like kind of in the trenches that will shape like the way that I potentially invest in companies and like the entrepreneurs that I'm evaluating and stuff, because you really need to have like such a resilient, like you need to have such thick skin and really be okay with like dealing with whatever, you know, and really like dealing with the emotional like shit that, sorry, the, like the emotional, do it, (laughs) do it. (laughs) That, um, that, that comes with starting a company. It's really hard. So would that be the characteristic that you think first and foremost you'd be looking for is that sort of that thick skin, that stamina? Yeah. I think endurance for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, you know, cause I, I think that, endurance and team building i'd say team is like a huge a huge thing there's a lot of like mediocre companies that had incredible teams that have done really well um and i think that that's because of like strategy and endurance from the founding team and then obviously that's passed through culturally to everyone else in the organization so zach's got a bit of an old soul feel about him considering he's still young although i'm pretty sure that red eye had something to do with it that's totally true i mean even though he was tired his enthusiasm for the brand is clear. And that personality of his really comes through in that awesome packaging. But even more interesting was how they use text to reorder. You know, I was actually surprised how quickly that caught on. Robin, it's convenient. That's true. Well, even if you've got a great idea, you're going to pick up some wins and some losses. And Zach seems to feel burning the midnight oil isn't all it's cracked up to be anymore. The free time that I have, I spend with my kids. Like this past weekend, we were in Boston. We went to a Red Sox game. We just like hang out, watch movies, like just very basic. Like I've come to appreciate those things like in a bigger way at this stage of my life than ever before. And just really appreciating like even like very small moments, having a good meal with them or like um, it's like probably the thing that is most satisfying to me personally. Um but then I think I've, I've, you know, I paint this picture of it being all very challenging, but there are like a lot of perks to, to running like a growing company and, and being a part of like, you know, something that is exciting, you know, from, from a growth standpoint. Um, so like we just opened an office in LA, that's why I was out there. Um, you know, so I spend a lot of time in LA. Um, we have vendors in cool places like Miami. So like, I'll like go down to, you know, and spend time with them and, um, I mean, I just try to get away and like blend work with, you know, time off as much as possible. Um, but yeah, that's taken some time. And I think just sleeping like has been like a really <laughs> great, <laughs> just like realizing that th- the impact that uh, on my productivity is much, is so much driven. I, I um, I met in, in how many, how many hours of sleep do you need? Are you an eight hour <laughs> guy? Seven? I, I, uh, I don't know, but I used to like push it like when I was younger I was an idiot. Like when I was, I remember building little duck and I would drink like two, five hour energies like at night just to like stay up as long as possible. It was just like the dumbest thing of all time. Um, and 
I just, I don't do that anymore. Like I'm very like focused on like going really hard throughout the day. And then like, you know, to one of your questions earlier is like, well, you know, what keeps you up at night? Like I, I don't stay up at night because I'm so tired by the time I put my head <laughs> on my pillow that I, I yeah, fall I, right asleep. I can't so. answer that question. Yeah. I, I will, I will point out that you are coming to us directly off of a red eye from LA though. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> you so. mentioned your family. What, what other roles your family played in, in supporting your entrepreneurial endeavors? Um, they, I would say I'm very inspired by my, my children, like just seeing the things that they're, so this past summer we had a, um, we had a, uh, a pop-up here in New York called the drugstore. So we had bartenders, we had a full bar that we opened, um, but there was no alcohol at it. So we were making homemade handcrafted versions of all of the dirty lemon drinks, um, in a very, um, it, it felt like a bar, but, but we were making dirty lemon and, um, it was really cool. But, uh, you know, I see like the way that I think everything that w- I've done, um, I don't know. I saw like the way I'm not going to be able to articulate this way I want to, but I saw like the, just like the moments where like they're engaging there. Like my daughter's like, she loves food, my oldest daughter. And, um, seeing like the way that she like engages with like she wants to like work with customers and she's like you know like running credit cards and stuff like that and um yeah i mean i think that that's very supportive to me uh yeah i mean i'm not married anymore i've um i i would say that um probably as a result of my like just um you know just my like um I was like very young and naive in my twenties. I just, I, I was, I, I was willing to sacrifice anything to prove myself and, and without really a good reason on the other side of that. Like I didn't have the perspective to know that like, it didn't really matter. Like just cause I sold the company or whatever it didn't, I actually felt worse after that than, than during when I was building it. It's like, it's all about the journey and then getting to the end doesn't really matter. It's like, um, it matters to achieve the goal, but it doesn't really matter. Like at the end of, you know, in the, in the long run. Anyways, in my twenties, I had like a, um, I got married, had three kids, got divorced and then, um, you know, ended up, uh, you know, that was it. That was my twenties. It's hard. It's like a lonely life. I mean, there's not, um, it's really hard to be a partner to someone who's building a company in any capacity, like whether that's a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or a wife, it's just really hard to, because you, and I was talking about this with one of my employees last night. Um, you never like you, you can never put into words or articulate well, even at the end of the day, like everything that's happened and it's isolating. I, I can only imagine to be the, the person on the other side of that where, it's not like a normal job where you're just going, you know, you go to work and then you come home and you watch like a TV show together. Like your brain's always on just like thinking through like what else needs to happen like tomorrow or what, what else needs to happen before I I go to bed? Like it never stops. And I think that's very, it's very challenging to be on the other end of that. And, um, so who do you, who do you use as a sounding board? Um, do you have a mentor? Yeah, I have a couple of really close investors in the company. Um, so yeah, investors that I, I communicate with on a, on a very regular basis. 
to employees, I want to come off as a leader and be strong and, and not have like, not show, I mean, it's okay to show weakness, but like you have to be decisive as a leader in, in a company. Um, so I would never have a conversation like this with an employee, like in this level of depth, you know? Um, but then on the other side of that, um, you can't be hard all the time because I think it, it like, you'll just like the, the, you know, no one wants to engage with like just someone that's a stone wall. So, um, so I do think it is like a really, it's a really, um, it's a, it's a balancing act that I think takes a lot of finesse and, um, experience to be able to like, to perfect in a way that's manageable. So. All right, Zach, it's game time. I'm ready. So the game is, we're going we're gonna to read you a series of questions in 60 seconds. Tell us the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? I'm ready. All right, let's go. The first thing you read every day is? New York Times. What's your favorite movie? The Fall. Your hometown is famous for? Uh, paper. What's your guilty pleasure? Alcohol. First car you ever drove? Ford F-150. Do you recline on airplanes? Yes, as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> if you could drink one thing for the rest of your life besides water, what do you choose? Dirty lemon. If you were stranded on an island and you could only bring one thing, what would it be? Uh, a, a notebook. What's the last hashtag you used? I don't use hashtags. Where's the next place you'd like to travel? China. If a movie was made of your life, you'd be played by? Uh, Larry David. Talent you don't have, but wish you did. Juggling. No, magic. Sorry, magic. What's your most hated food? Uh, chicken liver. Political issue. <laughs> Oh, it's close. Wait, what are the other? You got to, uh, you're at 19. 18. So for entrepreneurs out there, are there any sage words of advice that, that you'd be able to give them? Yes. So um, the only way to, in my, in, in my perspective, to be successful in this world, in, in the world of startups, not in like this world, um, is to put yourself in the most uncomfortable position you can and w- like, you know, not obviously risking your life, but put yourself in the most uncomfortable position you can financially or professionally or whatever it is, knowing that the only way out is to succeed in what you're doing. And I think that brings out like a different side of a lot of people when you like think through things like that. And, um, for me it's, um, I've had to temper that with like, you know, you you can't do that. You know, at some point that becomes reckless. So it can't be, be like the only thing that consumes that, you know, that that it, it can't be my only guiding light, but, um, yeah, I think it truly is like, you know, it's, there's so many variables to consider with companies and, um, I think a good idea isn't enough. You need to push yourself constantly to, to like really, um, make something happen. Um, I mean, this is all coming from my perspective. I have a very high expectation for what I want to achieve. Um, and maybe that's not the same for someone who's listening to this, but, um, I'd say in general to achieve big things, you need to take big risks and not be afraid to, you know, um, to sleep on a couch or, you know, not have any money in your bank account or, um, or not be able to see your family for a few days or whatever it may be. 
Um, and it's those situations that I think are going that ultimately make you stronger and, and, and allow you to be successful. So, well, Zach, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate thanks. it. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with Greg Fleischman and Sarah Michelle Geller, co-founders of Foodsters, an organic baking brand that wants to bring friends and families together in the kitchen. But as Sarah Michelle's learned, being an entrepreneur and working around the clock every day is not the same as being a celebrity spokesperson, and it's not for everyone. You know, is it a partnership that works? Is this person really committed? Do they think they can commit to it and then turn around six months later and go, this is way too hard. Like, I need to sit in my trailer and have someone, you know, polish my nails and and bring me food. That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.